the real differentiator is between historical versus what we're seeing now with the GRU's operations is their operational tempo. It's pretty unprecedented. They've been operating at a very, very fast pace since the outset of the war, and they really haven't let up. When we see these lulls in these operations, we don't necessarily view it as, oh, the GRU's going away. We view it as either they're retargeting, retooling, they may be operating outside of our visibility, but we know that they're going to be coming back and they're going to be consistent in their operations. We do see them favoring, I think, disruptive operations. But the thing about doing a disruptive operation is that when you deploy a wiper, you're inherently showing your access. So kind of pairing that with an espionage mandate, which is inherently covert, is really challenging to do and challenging to conceptualize. So despite them having really prioritized this disruptive mandate, they still continue to try to regain access. I think there's signs that the GRU is maybe waning when it comes to tooling availability. We're seeing a lot of reuse of things like Caddy Wiper over and over, and you know, just a lot of mistakes and and problems getting these wipers deployed. And it really just shows that you know, having such a strong defense on the Ukrainian side has really mitigated a lot of the destruction that people were anticipating out of these attacks. Welcome to another episode of Manian's Defenders Advantage podcast. I am your host, Luke McNamara. In February of this year, we saw Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the continuing conflict that has ensued. It's taking place in numerous domains, cyber, of course, certainly being one of them. I think it's fair to say that this has been a geopolitical driver that shaped a lot of our customer and partner interactions, a lot of conversations around this. So I thought for one of our final episodes of this year, it might be useful to kind of return to this topic. Uh, Who better than to help me do this than the three guests I have today? fantastic analysts that have been working the Russia problem here at Mandiant and are here to share their perspective. So I have today Gabby Roncone, John Wolfram, both hot off a presentation at CyberWarCon, I might add, uh, around some of what we're going to discuss today, and Tyler McClellan. So great uh, to have you all here this afternoon. Thanks so much, Luke. Thanks a lot. Let's, uh, I guess, maybe just jumping straight into it. And I almost think that maybe in some ways this this topic is a, is a bit daunting given, you know, in, in kind of our prep calls and we we're talking through what do we actually want to cover here? There's so many different ways we could approach this. There's, there's a lot, obviously, around the topic of Russian cyber operations this year that we could delve into. I would also point people to the great episode we did a couple months ago with Sam and Alden around some of the IO activity that we've seen in Ukraine. But I think specifically focusing on the cyber operations within Ukraine and some of the things that we noted early on, one of, I think, sort of the early assessments that we were seeing was activity that seemed to be predominantly coming from GRU attributed or suspected groups in the operations that we were seeing in Ukraine. Does that still hold true? And what are we seeing now? Yeah, so the the majority of the activity that we have seen in Ukraine so far has been from GRU clusters. And this activity has been quite interesting because it seems to be occurring in waves 
throughout this year so far. One of the things that John and I talk about during our cyber war crime presentation is how we see the GRU trying to balance this need for access and this need for action over time while, you know, completing their espionage goals because the GRU is a military intelligence agency, right? And so as a result, we see sort of a lot of disruptive wiper activity right off the bat from the GRU and then very consistent operations with very fast turnaround times basically through the first month of the war to now. And that doesn't mean, right, we're seeing a wiper operation every week. That, that's not true. And that's unsustainable, I think, for the GRU to do. But that's where the waves come in. We'll see a couple of wiper operations and then a lull in between with some attempted access and collection operations. And going back to our cyber war con presentation, we see that the GRU is relying on edge infrastructure to constantly reaccess various networks to continue this sort of cyclical natured disruptive operation. And I'll pass it to John to, to, to follow up on that. Yeah, I, I think that's all, those are all great points, Gabby, and uh, definitely hard to follow up to that. When we look at what we've seen from the GRU in Ukraine and we compare it to how we viewed the GRU and GRU-related cl- clusters in the past, I think it's important to kind of look at that and see like what are like the characteristics between both sets and like is there a difference between historical versus what we're seeing now in Ukraine. And what we see is some of the hallmarks of classic GRU operations like aggressiveness, the use of some typical tools that we see a lot with the GRU, specifically Empire, Metasploit, and Impacket, what we call the uh, triforce of GRU operations in our cyber work on talk. But what the real differentiator is between like historical versus what we're seeing now with the GRU's operations is their operational tempo is pretty unprecedented. They've been operating at a very, very fast pace since the outset of the war, and they really haven't let up. When we see these lulls in these operations, we don't necessarily view it as, oh, the GRU is like going away. We view it as either they're retargeting, retooling. They may be operating outside of our visibility, but we know that they're going to be coming back and they're going to be consistent in their operations. So you're seeing, you know, maybe, and again, I think a lot of people are looking at this conflict because it's really one of the first large scale conflicts where cyber, you have a major, you know, cyber power that many, especially in this space, are very familiar with a lot of their their operators and groups, but you're seeing them employ that capability in a time of war. And, you know, Gabby, as you noted, this organization's actors associated with the GRU it makes sense that we would see them take the lead given the military nature of that organization. And one of the things that I think both you and John referenced is a sort of breakdown between, obviously, when you think about groups like Sandworm or 28, um, I think two of the well-known personas attached to associated units within the GRU, there's always been this sort of dual mandate that we've seen uh, between espionage and then also destructive operations. And so in a time of war and conflict, you can imagine there would be taskings for both of those things. So from your observances, where has been that sort of breakdown? Have we seen a focus more on one than the other? Obviously, at the beginning, the outset, we saw these wiper malwares that were being used, um, some of which seem to be maybe leveraged more frequently than others. 
But just looking at that overall set of activity, and again, obviously the massive caveat I should have mentioned at the beginning of this is this is all kind of coming from our you know perspective and observation into this conflict. But where's been that breakdown that you've observed? Yeah, it's it's actually really interesting because we do see them favoring, I think, disruptive operations. But the thing about doing a disruptive operation is that, you know, when you deploy a wiper, you're inherently sort of showing your access, right? So you deploy a wiper, people know they've been wiped. (laughs) And then, you know, they can call in some sort of remediation. They can attempt to kind of clean those actors out of their systems uh, the, the actors might even wipe themselves, right? They might even wipe their own access in the process of doing this. So kind of pairing that with an espionage mandate, which is you know inherently covert, is really challenging to do and challenging to conceptualize. So despite them having really prioritized this disruptive mandate, they still continue to try to regain access for espionage operations and for continued access. These things are just so inherently opposed. And that's, I guess, what what John was saying was not only is the, the rapid pace of these operations impressive, but also the fact that they've sort of figured out a, a way to, to live on the edge of networks and continually get back into them despite showing their hand. Tyler, John, any follow-ups to that you want to add? Sure. I think it's been interesting to see the hybrid approach that the GRU has been taking. We've seen intrusions where Caddy Wiper was deployed, so we know it's a GRU operation, but then having data from these organizations, these victims leaked on some of the telegram groups like Hacknet or Cyber Army of Russia Reborn. So this kind of approach of, of, you know, potentially some espionage, some destructive operations, and then these information operations where they're publicly exposing the data has been really quite the the shift for them, just from you know, traditional stuff we've seen. We've seen some hacking le- leaks previously, but we're seeing a lot more just regularly happening in the Ukraine conflict. Yeah, and that's a great point there. And there's, there's a whole episode we could probably do around the sort of hacktivist quote-unquote component uh, to what we've seen on the Russian side and the connection that we've observed to some of the GRU operations, such as APT-28 activity. Kind of shifting a little bit to discuss what we've seen from non-GRU Russian-suspected groups. Um, What have we been seeing there from some of maybe the well-known to to people that follow this space, uh, some of the well-known actors or others that we've seen emerge? As you can imagine, a conflict like this would, would generate a lot of new unks that I'm sure you've spent many hours trying to connect the dots back to, but what are some of those non-GRU groups doing that you've observed this year? Well, I think one of the most interesting unks that we've seen routinely across a couple organizations is Invisible showing up. We haven't really come across them too much prior. You know, there's been some public reporting on them, but we have the opportunity now. We've seen them go kind of end-to-end with their intrusions. We've seen phishing, We've seen them get access. We've seen a little bit of lateral movement and some data theft. And they're kind of one of those mystery groups where we're not entirely sure exactly where they fit in. But just to be able to see them kind of do these end-to-end intrusions has been pretty neat. 
What about, uh, I think another well-known group associated, particularly with targeting in Ukraine, has been Temp Armageddon. And there was actually some interesting reporting, I believe the Ukrainian government put out towards the beginning of the conflict, or maybe even right before, kind of around the origin of that group, which is pretty interesting. But that's a group that historically has had a focus uh, on Ukrainian targets and even entities outside of Ukraine that work with a lot of uh, Ukrainian government and military entities. What have we been seeing from Armageddon this year? When we look at like what we've seen from Temp, Ar- Temp Armageddon, UNC 530, it's been pretty interesting when we look at it in the crux of the overall Russian wartime operations. Prior to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, I think the largest group that was targeting Ukraine, I think everyone would probably say is UNC 530. When Russia invaded, we saw UNC 530 drop off um, substantially. And this was pretty interesting as the GRU kind of took up the the mantle and started like being what we observed as the lead for wartime operations in the cyber area. We have observed UNC 530 come back. Um, and what we've seen from them is really interesting because it's not just the the standard UNC 530 uh, Temp Armageddon fishing that I think everyone thinks of them. We've seen some really interesting lateral movement from them, as well as some really interesting like methods for data theft that I think Tyler could probably talk about better than me. Yeah, I think UNC 530 has really shown a lot of really rapid progression throughout um, the Ukraine conflict. We've seen them deploy a number of new tools regularly. Every couple of weeks, they're changing up and deploying something new. Um, so there's really that constant evolution. Um, additionally, we hadn't really seen them do a lot of data theft. We've seen a lot of phishing previously, and it never really was super successful. But they seem to be putting a lot, of, a lot more resources in now and doing a lot of lateral movement and data theft within their operations. And even leveraging some of the accesses that they've had to do additional phishing at more interesting targets, things like that that are you know, really just living off the land and, and taking whatever access they, they have to try to improve to get a better access. One thing I'd like to add too about Temp Armageddon is that unlike some GRU clusters, we've actually seen some temp Armageddon targeting outside of Ukraine. Again, this might be a result of our limited visibility, but I think compared to some other actors, they they were targeting, I think, Moldova and Poland, right? So countries adjacent to the conflict and still in Russian interests, but not directly in relation to the conflict. You know, it certainly seems they've come a, a long way since, uh, I think I remember when we first started observing them, they were using things like RMS, Trojan, and TeamViewer. So a level of uh, skill up-leveling and maybe further resourcing that they're getting to improve those operations. And also, as you note, Gabby, sort of the expansion of, of targets. One of the groups I wanted to touch on and follow up with you guys on, because I think they were one that was mentioned a lot, um, including in, I think, a couple of our public webinars at the beginning of this year, an interesting group that falls into this is UNC-2589. Um, this is a group, a Russian threat group, a suspected Russian threat group, um, that I think in kind of early observations seem to be using a lot of um, e-crime tools, you know, things that didn't lead to us kind of initially linking them to a known, you know, organizational sponsored within the Russian security services. What have we seen from them this year and, and kind of what has progressed in terms of our assessment analysis of that group? 
yes, I'm 2589. <laughs> yeah, so we, we've seen them as well sort of throughout this year. I'm sure you've talked about in, in previous podcasts and webinars the January 15th, I think, operation with Whispergate, our shady look and pay wipe where um, 2589 kind of just came out before the war even started and conducted this wiper operation against Ukraine that included a defacement with a reference to a persona called free civilian. And the whole thing was just very odd because we hadn't seen um, 2589 conduct a disruptive operation before. Not only that, but the timing of it was really weird. It was a month before the conflict started out, and the defacement that was actually used in that operation was reused in the defacements on January 24th, when the initial sort of GRU wiper campaigns began to kick off in Ukraine alongside the war. So... 2589 kind of sits in a weird place in, in this conflict from the start, right? Now, we, we track a couple adjacent groups to 2589, including one that appears to look like mostly criminal activity with some espionage overlaps, and another that appears to be mostly espionage activity. There has been Ukraine targeting in those clusters as well. But UNC 2589 has also targeted countries outside of Ukraine during the conflict. So like Temp Armageddon, right, this is a group that is not operating exclusively to further the goals of Russia in the, you know, Ukraine-Russia war, as, as far as we can tell. There's still a mystery. And as John said, they're, they're definitely fun to track but we're, we're still watching <laughs> and, and, and waiting to make a little bit more sense of, of what they're doing. And I think an important one to track, given the, the fact that they also seem to have an interest in disruptive or destructive operations uh, and yeah. not espionage. And, and the, um, the fact that they're using a persona as well with the free civilian persona at the beginning of the war, uh, we had actually tied one of their previous operations to another persona that was leaking a Eastern European government's data on a forum. And so it's a very interesting group and we'll we'll see how they evolve over time. So a lot of mysteries that still are in play when it comes to our understanding about the nature of some of these groups and you know their taskings and, and kind of their focus. What is your sense though with where we are right now with the conflict in Ukraine. And again, the sort of evolution that you've seen before, going back to what you were saying at the beginning about these sort of waves of operations that you've seen from GRU-affiliated groups. You have the activity from the non-GRU groups that has has also taken place. And I think, John, you know, in one of our earlier conversations, you had mentioned something about seeing an increase from those non-GRU groups in, in recent months. But give the audience a sort of sense of where you think we're at right now when it comes to maybe the volume and the areas of focus and the types of of operations that we seem to be seeing from overall Russian threat activity in Ukraine. So I think when we look at the current state of like cyber operations in Ukraine since the outset of the war, I think it would be fair to say that the GRU still has the lead in Ukraine. 
we do see continued wiper operations and we do see GRU clusters coming back consistently. But we have seen other clusters of activity that we suspect to be related to Russian intelligence services also operating within Ukraine. I think that as we kind of move forward and as Russia continues their their war against Ukraine um, and they continue to face challenges from Ukraine, um, such as the loss of Kyrgyzstan, that their, their operations are going to continue. And I think that when we look at how how things have played out and where things are going, I think that it's fair to say that we'll we'll continue to see uh, Russian cyber operations and Russian cyber against Ukraine for the foreseeable future. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're seeing a constant level of intrusions and wiper operations that keep, keep returning. But I think there's signs that the GRU is maybe waning when it comes to, to tooling availability. We're seeing a lot of reuse of things like caddy wiper over and over. And, you know, just a lot of mistakes and, and problems getting these wipers deployed. And it really just shows like, you know, having such a strong defense on the Ukrainian side has really mitigated a lot of the destruction that people were anticipating out of these attacks. I think that the Ukraine has done a really, really good job in just defending their networks and being on top of stuff so quickly that um, stuff attacks haven't really spread as wide as people were anticipating early on. And, you know, just the GRU just having to reuse things and, and you know, put the wrong commands in when they're, when they're trying to deploy these wipers has really shown they haven't really been able to keep up against the defenses. So Clausewitz's uh, concept of friction in time of war applies to wiper malware as well. Exactly. For all the, the political scientists that listen to this uh, podcast, maybe they'll appreciate it. Gabby, any, any thoughts from, from you? Um, one thing I'd like to touch on, kind of going back to the idea of GRU operations happening in, in waves, right, and, and kind of having this disruptive agenda, is the recent reporting by Mystic on what they call prestige ransomware that hit Poland a couple of weeks ago. And I find this to be a really interesting case because they ended up attributing it to Iridium or Sandworm. The interesting thing about that is, one, this is not Caddy Wiper, right? This is, this is a new kind of wiping activity that's, again, masquerading as ransomware like a lot of the, the early wipers did against Ukraine. But they seem to have moved away from that in Ukraine, and now now they're they're deploying sort of fake ransomware in in Poland. The other thing is that the the targeting of Poland seems to be kind of interesting from a strategic point of view because the GRU focus, at least in our opinion, has been really solidly on Ukraine for especially for disruptive operations, and Poland it has always sort of been in the middle of the friction between Russia and the West. So you're you're seeing these operations sort of spill over into NATO countries, into the rest of Europe, as the Russian effort in Ukraine is kind of, you know, falling apart because of the Ukrainian resilience there. So I'm wondering if we'll see more disruptive targeting outside of Ukraine in the future. I'm wondering if we'll see more of this sort of pseudo ransomware stuff where it might even have an IO component to it, right? 
but really targeted, really, really trying to aim at anyone who sort of helps Ukraine during the conflict in the future versus at Ukraine itself. And so I'm interested to see where, where that goes. It's, it's a great point and actually a, a fantastic segue into what I also kind of want to pick all of your brains around, which is at the outset of the conflict, that was a big area of concern, I think, for a lot of, again, customers, government partners, et cetera, that we work with. How much of a spillover from the conflict in Ukraine were we going to see? And obviously, if a sort of spillover were to occur, that happening in the cyber domain makes sense where you would see that happen. And I think there were these sort of fears, or are we going to see not Petya 2.0? Are we going to see sort of large-scale disruptive operations against Western targets? You see the sanctions start ramping up. And this is a, a capability that Russia has, sort of asymmetrically, how they've always wielded it as a way to kind of lash out against targets in a way that's made it very difficult from a policy standpoint, I think, often to respond and know kind of how to appropriately gauge the response to that. And they've always, I think, kind of wielded it as such. So that's the sort of question, I guess, that I would have for you is what have we seen this year shifting away from within Ukraine? Certainly, there seems to be maybe more of a focus once you get outside of Ukraine on the sort of immediate region, you know, entities in the Baltics, Poland. Poland has always seen a lot of activity from, from Russian threat groups. Uh, other countries like Moldova or Georgia as well, always seeing a, a high level of Russian threat activity. But what is kind of at a general high level, you know, viewpoint, what have we seen beyond Ukraine this year when it comes to Russian operations? Even with the conflict in Ukraine going on, one can imagine there's certainly taskings that parts of the Russian intel services have for sort of standing collection requirements that don't go away just because there's a war specifically going on in Ukraine. So one can imagine there would be a need for continuing cyber operations, at least of an espionage nature, to continue. And it seems like we've continued to see those this year, correct? I actually want to just kick this over to Tyler to talk about APT-29 a little bit. Yeah, I mean, we, we've seen targeting by APT-29 from earlier this year and continuing targeting uh, NATO and some European countries' uh, MFA departments things like that. But then we've also seen just the, you know, the pure espionage of targeting like think tank organizations like that, but not really necessarily anything new for APT29. It's just more of it, you know, things have continued for them, just more of the same that we've seen historically, that the same interest. We haven't really seen a shift, particularly in reference to the, into the Ukraine conflict with them, other than just, uh, you know, a specific interest in, in MFA targeting. Well, I'm glad you brought up 29 because I think our most popular episode that we've done so far this year has been the one we did on Onk 3524, which if people are going and tracking all of our blog posts and the amendments and changes we make to them, they might have noticed or may have slipped past them that we recently merged Onk 3524 into APD 29. I know, Tyler, you were part of you know a lot of the research and work into 29 around this time. So can you talk maybe a little bit as to what were some of the components or things that got us to the level of confidence where we could merge that group into 29, who I should also reference for people that aren't as familiar with Russian threat groups. This is uh, a threat actor, maybe most commonly now associated with the solar winds compromise. And so heavily known for that, but a wide variety of operations and certainly one of the more stealthy and opset conscious groups when we think about Russian threat actors. Yeah, we definitely have a really interesting process when it comes to you know, reviewing these UNC groups and trying to merge them into, say, a bigger group like an APT, like APT-29 in this case. So we have a group called Manian Archaeology, and they have 
a process where we look at all the similarities between two different groups. So say UNC 3524 in this case, and APD 29. And we try to find certain aspects of their operations that align to both those groups and then not necessarily hitting on any other groups as much as possible. So we want to find unique TTPs to these groups that we can use to identify their operations. And then we actually build a case with a bunch of different points and then we put it out to a group to vote. And then if there's no abstentions and we get a, at least two votes from people, then we'll actually merge these groups together. So with UG3524, we had some really interesting TTPs. So things like adding a service principal account, that's something that we haven't really seen any other uh, groups use this technique in, in the thousands of intrusions that we have. But it is a public TTP. So it's one of these things that, you know, we have to really look at on the whole, how do these things fit together? So when we dig in even deeper, so they're using um, things like Microsoft Exchange services, uh, admin account impersonation, but they're using it in a very unique way. They're doing a particular operation with that that we haven't seen any other groups use besides these two. And then even little things like where they're staging their tools. So they actually stage tools in the same directory. So both APT29 and some of the solar winds intrusions that we saw a couple of years ago, and then the UNC3524 intrusions, they, you know, they use the same directory to stage some tooling. Also, we had things, a little bit of infrastructure overlap. So we had a similar VPS hosting provider that was used. So when we take all of these things together, that allowed us to build the case to, to say that UNC3524 is APT29. And then other, any sort of other interesting thoughts or in kind of observations from what you've seen 29 do this year? And again, I mean, this is a group that primarily we understand them to have an espionage focus and, and mission. And a lot of the targets you mentioned kind of earlier seem to be in alignment with what we've seen historically from them. But any sort of interesting targeting patterns that have emerged in their activity in, in 2022? Yeah, so the neat thing with APT29 is they really learn from when they get caught. Every time we catch them doing something and we out them publicly, they learn and they adapt. So one of the really interesting things that we've seen throughout 2022 is the fact that they're stealing authentication tokens. So that's allowing them to log in as another user, um, but without triggering any of the alerting from logging in from a weird IP. So I think we, we did a recent blog came out covering some of this activity, but it is something that, that we're seeing them do. And it's allowed them to, to evade a lot of detection recently uh, and we're seeing them active, um, like right up to today now, do, using these techniques to uh, to evade detection. Which again, I think probably speaks to the importance of, I think this was on one of uh, Kevin's bullets at uh, MYS this year, but the importance of identity, how that's going to be, a, you know, continues to be a big thing going forward and attacking or spoofing or targeting that in some way is something we'll probably continue to see even by groups such as APD29. So bringing this, I guess, maybe back around to... You've all looked at various Russian threat groups this year. You've spent a lot of time looking at Russian threat groups this year. What do you think are some of the underappreciated trends or natures or components of some of this activity? Obviously, there's a lot of people within cyber threat intel and, and the security researcher community that if they didn't follow even sort of passively some of the activity from these groups, these APTs, certainly this year, probably more so they are now. And there's a lot of discussion around these groups. And a lot of these groups are, are well known. But are there certain components of the activity that you see or maybe even the nature 
of operations that you think are maybe under discussed or underappreciated with what you've seen this year? So I think for me, one thing that has been maybe not underappreciated, but under, I think, discussed is just how how fast and how uh, just sheer volume the GRU has operated since their, the invasion of Ukraine. I think that when we look at like the operational tempo of the GRU, it has been pretty unprecedented for them. And when we look at how this has kind of come about, we see them, like as we talked about in CyberWorkCon, living on the edge, but we also see them using kind of like low rent TTPs that most people would probably like be like, oh, like this is not an APT, but we see the GRU using them consistently. And one of the points that we had in our cyber work on talk was we saw the GRU consistently leveraging like Empire Metasploit and Impact, you know, things that are widely available, they're public tools, Empire's pretty old at this point. Like, why are they using these type of like tooling when they could like uh, ostensibly just build their own empire, build their own custom tooling. And it's because it works and it allows them to have these quick turnaround ops that they need to sustain this this balance of access and action during their wartime operations. Yeah, to, to build off of that too, one of the things that we discuss in, in our Cyber Warcon presentation is that the GRU almost seems to have been learning and almost evolving over this very short time during the war on Ukraine, right? And we see this in the reuse of their toolbox, but we also see it in the reuse of specific tools like Caddy Wiper. So you don't need to, right, like build out a big multifunctional wiper that you're going to burn, you know, in two days, <laughs> right? Like that's a lot of resources for a really short turnaround. And as, as John said, right, you're going to be doing these quick turnaround operations so often. If you build out these, these not petias over and over and over again, you're not going to get anything done. You're, you're just going to run out of resources in the first three weeks of the war. And so Caddy Wiper kind of presents itself as this really lightweight tool that they've consistently modified in small ways over time and deployed in, in certain ways to try to avoid detection. So even though they're reusing this tool, th these small adjustments that they make and the fact that it is literally doing nothing other than wiping makes it really easily deployable. Now, as Tyler said before, you know, they're still making mistakes in deploying it. Obviously, you know, either the, the GRU is burning out, <laughs> um, they need some PTO, or there were just so many wipers at the onset of the war that the instructions appear to be really confusing now. But I do find it really interesting that it's almost like we, we see a GRU that has evolved for wartime and is now evolving during wartime to meet these, I assume, really, really fast-paced, really, really strict operational objectives, right? So I'm, I'm interested to see how they, they continue to evolve, if their toolkit will evolve with them or not, is, is a question that, you know, remains to be seen. Yeah, I think... I mean, for me, one of the really interesting things has been how some of the real world aspects have kind of played into the cyber domain. So we had 
what was kind of interesting was uh, we had three malware families where uh, to run, they would take a, a Z as a command line parameter. So really mirroring the whole coming into Ukraine with Z painted on the tanks. Um, so that really got my attention just because it's, it, um, it's such a weird thing for us to see with, with malware. It was like a simple anti-analysis technique that, you know, you throw the malware in a sandbox, it's not going to do anything, but then you put that Z command line and then the malware detonates and downloads its payload or does whatever. And for so, all of our American listeners, a Z is a letter Z. <laughs> Just wanted to, to make that quick point, but back to you, Tyler. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, my Canadian side is is, uh, is showing. If I could just make one more quick point, I think one thing that has been also kind of under-discussed has been just the idea that I think the GRU, Russia had this idea that they could invade Ukraine in three days and that Ukraine would be an easily destabilized state and that that also seems to have played out in, I think, their cyber operations as well. So when we look at the outs of the war, we see multiple wipers targeting key strategic targets within Ukraine. But as we all know, the war has gone on. And I think one thing that has been maybe not underrepresented or um, under-discussed, but I think is Ukrainian resilience throughout this whole whole war in Ukraine on the battlefield, but also in, in the cyber domain too. I think that Ukrainian defenders have been consistently amazing and i just have to give all of the the props and and respect to them totally totally agree and i think a lot of people have been asking the question where where is the cyber war and it's like oh the ukrainian defenders are stopping the cyber war right like the reason why you know (laughs) the outside world isn't seeing wiper attack after wiper attack why the gru has been thwarted so many times are because of those defenders so it's really it's really amazing work coming from them. Yeah, the defenders get a vote too in all of this. So maybe to kind of wrap this all up, sort of final question to, to pose to all three of you. Any sort of bold predictions are welcome, but uh, if you want to kind of leave the audience with what are some things based on what you're seeing and looking at and where again kind of the conflict has kind of stalled out, you know, maybe on, on traditional uh, military kinetic fronts, you know, the, the cyber component, John, as you mentioned, this might be an area where they kind of leverage more activity going forward, or I think Abby, you were also making that point, but what are some things that you think we see going forward? What are some things that you guys as analysts and researchers have your eye on uh, that you're looking for of where kind of the next phase of this conflict could evolve or just things in general we might see in 2023 if Russia continues to be bogged down in a conflict in Ukraine? What does that mean maybe for some of the other global operations that they might otherwise want to conduct or do? So free free uh, form answers you know whatever thoughts you guys have what do you think we see next year i'll start <laughs> i think this is this is going to be so out of left field with what we've talked about so far so get ready um so there's been a lot of reporting right on how sanctions have affected russia so far and russia has not necessarily been known for economic espionage in the past but i think there may be some shift to economic espionage in the future as a result of just the the very, very heavy sanctions. You know, there are reports that Russia is taking planes apart and reusing legacy tools to, to rebuild jets. This is not normal behavior and is 
probably going to lead to some significant repercussions for them. There's also, you know, you have to consider the brain drain where people don't want to get conscripted. So they're trying to leave Russia and the people who are trying to leave could be, you know, people who would help solve these technological problems in the future. So there are a lot of things sort of building up, I think, right now because of that, that will lead to a need for Russia to figure out an economic espionage plan in the future. So you're saying we could see a level of economic espionage activity that might include things like IP theft that we've not historically seen from some of these groups. Yeah, absolutely. That's my that's my out of left field guess. <laughs> Excellent. John, what about you? So I think some of the APT29 activity that Tyler um, talked about, we put out a really good blog on it um, called Trello from the other side, talking about APT29 diplomatic targeting. I would say really, uh, it's a really consistent activity. I'm going to be, I'm not going to go out to left field. I'm going to be very lame and uh, stick with the consistent. So I think that APT29 SVR will continue to target diplomatic entities to try and gain strategic intelligence to enable Russian decision makers. I think that that is, it's kind of a given. So I, I, it's not really out of left field. I think we'll see that those clusters are really interesting in that they, while they do a lot of phishing, they're also really, really effective once they get on host. So if we were to see those groups switch their targeting, which has been primarily diplomatic to like more commercial, like Gabby's talking about, that would be something that's interesting, not saying that we will, but just things to think about. And you know, for all of the defenders out there, make sure you're watching for ISOs and image files and LNKs, um, all of the good stuff that even some of the access groups like uh, Bumblebee have started to, to leverage as well. Excellent. I like it. Tyler, over to you for the final uh, word here. All right. I think the, the GRU is continuing to target edge infrastructure, not just within the Ukraine, but also outside the Ukraine. And I think that there is some potential for things to kind of spin out depending on how the conflict continues and how things happen. I think Russia is trying to be in a position where they could do some of these sort of token destructive attacks, like we've seen with the, the Prestige ransomware, Presti as we call it. I'm not sure it's necessarily going to be particularly effective, but I think it's going to get them new cycles to, to go out and do this kind of stuff um, and to get attention. And you know, we've seen signs of things like Exchange and Zimbra targeting, so it's going to be really critical for people, for organizations to keep up on those patches on all of the services they have on their edge infrastructure, just to kind of lower that attack surface. You know, should Russia choose to start doing more attacks outside of uh, Ukraine? Excellent. Those are all great points. And, uh, you know, for everyone listening to this that are upset we didn't mention their favorite Russian threat group, there's obviously a lot of other additional stuff we did not have time to get to, but keep an eye out for additional research, obviously, on activity associated with Russian threat activities, because I don't imagine that that will slow down anytime going into 2023. And there's a lot of you know ongoing work underway around that. So more, more certainly to follow. Certainly, as the conflict continues, and you know, as as operations from these, some of these groups are continuing to task out. What that evolution looks like will be interesting to kind of follow, but I think you've all provided some excellent kind of food for thought going forward, what we should be looking for and what organizations should be thinking through when it comes to Russian threat actors. So 
Thank you all for your time today and uh, excellent points all around. Take care. Thanks for having us. Thanks so much.